Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found True Crime Podcast. Hey, listen, you may notice that I'm starting things off a little differently today. That's because I want to tell you about our new spin-off podcast called Dying to be Found The Dash. It's kind of the same, but a little different over there. First off, you get just me telling some pretty interesting tales all by myself or with some really cool co-hosts you won't get here on Dying to be Found. If you haven't had a chance to check out Dying to be Found The Dash, make sure you do. But for today, I've hand-selected a sample episode of Dying to be Found The Dash right here on the DB2F platform. Keep listening and let me know what you think because it's going to be a good one. Be sure to check out more episodes of Dying to be Found The Dash on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, happy listening and talk to you soon. Have you ever seen that show, The First 48? It's a true crime series that first aired in 2004 and has covered over 450 violent crime cases since its debut. The premise is in the title, which is that the first 48 hours after a violent crime occurs is the most critical and stands a better chance of solving the case if investigators get enough leads through their own efforts, plus from the help of police officers, eyewitnesses, and the general public. According to the New York Times, it frequently takes more than 48 hours to even produce viable leads. What really helps to solve these crimes is to dedicate more manpower and investigative hours to do so, which is not always easy to do. Realistically, we know that resources are not always readily available. In fact, Chicago, Illinois, which currently holds one of the highest crime rates in America, only clears 14% of murder cases within those first 48 hours. By clearance, I mean that investigators were successful in gathering enough evidence to make an arrest. This is just one example of how agencies are challenged with gathering evidence and putting the puzzle pieces together in the first 48 This is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hi everyone, this is Deb, your host from the true crime podcast, Dying to be Found. Welcome to DB2F's mini episode series called Dying to be Found, The Dash, where I bring you short stories on true crime events. Sometimes I go solo and sometimes I talk with fellow true crime podcasters or enthusiasts. Things are getting a little busy around here and if you're listening to this episode, you know that I've created a second podcast. Be sure to search for Dying to be Found, The Dash, wherever you get your podcasts where I'll bring you short stories. You all know I like to tell stories, so be sure to DM me and let me know what you think. Let's talk about a couple of past versus present crimes and how investigative methods occurred. In days past, in contrast to how they are investigated today, 
I mentioned that the first 48 hours is critical, but we'll get back to that in just a moment. While I was researching this episode, I found some additional information that is equally important when it comes to solving crimes. That brings us to solving bomb threats. If you listen to episode 59, The Brian Wells Story, on the Dying to Be Found podcast, you know bomb threats are uber time sensitive. Back in the day, bomb squad teams were alerted, travel time to the scene would add to the critical time factors, and assessments had to be made. In Brian's case, the bomb was locked around his neck. Let's just say that these types of bombs don't always work out in everyone's favor. Fast forward to modern times, technology is used in various ways that cuts through some of the time-critical factors. Robots come along for the ride with the bomb squad. They're deployed close to the threat and take pictures that can be uploaded for further analysis. But what if the bomb threat is called in, say, in a busy city high-rise or even a school? Authorities now use software programs similar to Google Maps to grid a city block and quickly locate the coordinates where the bomb threat was issued. They can also access digital floor plans to access bomb locations and conditions, plus evacuate buildings quickly and efficiently. So let's get back to the violent crimes that I talked about at the very beginning of this episode. According to the Marshall Project, violent crimes fall under various categories, including homicide, manslaughter, rape, assault, and robbery. Remember now, the first 48 hours of a violent crime taking place are the most critical in clearing a suspect. Clearance just means that a suspect is identified, but further investigations must take place to determine if charges can even be filed. Specifically, cleared murder-related cases were at their lowest in 1997 and have not been that low ever since. As of 2020, however, the national homicide clearance rates did drop, but this is contributed to the many restrictions we experienced during the height of the COVID pandemic. There are still ongoing challenges associated with violent crimes. On the whole, murder cases are becoming increasingly difficult to investigate because the rate of strangers committing these crimes is on the rise, whereas in decades past, a lot of these incidents occurred by someone we know. Violent crimes involving firearms are the most difficult to solve due to the fact that guns are used more frequently during the act of a felony, where the perpetrator and victim do not typically know each other. On the other hand, stabbings are 39% more likely to be solved within that 48-hour mark because many times these incidents occur during a heated argument and are not fully planned out. And this usually means that it's a crime of passion, if you will. What this really boils down to is that investigators usually have to go back to the drawing board. Modern technology and DNA advancements do help to bring a fresh approach to new and cold cases, but it still takes well over 48 hours to collect evidence. Investigators sometimes have to sift through decades-old evidence, if there is any, to conduct forensic testing and DNA analysis. We've all heard that fresh eyes help to solve cold cases, and there's definitely some truth to this. However, it's just not that simple. Local agencies face ongoing staffing shortages to investigate cold cases because we know newer cases usually take priority. Agencies also have hurdles to jump through when attempting to reopen cold cases. Ultimately, they're responsible for collecting enough evidence to convince lawmakers and other agencies 
that a cold case should be reopened and has a chance of being solved this go-round. I came across an absolutely fascinating story of a forensic scientist by the name of Dr. Angela Gallup. Dr. Gallup is also known as the Queen of Forensics because she has solved crimes that nobody else could. In 1982, a man was discovered hanging from a bridge in central London, England. This death was ruled a suicide, but family members did not accept this as the case. Nine years later, they asked Dr. Gallup to review the case, and boy did she. Dr. Gallup took a look at the evidence, reconstructed the scene in her own backyard, convinced her husband, who was about the same size and build as the deceased man, to reenact the steps that the man would have taken to his death, and came to the conclusion that this was, in fact, a homicide. In 1999, Dr. Gallup successfully provided evidence in a decade-old case where three men had been wrongly accused of stabbing a sex worker to death, and they were sentenced to life in prison. Dr. Gallup was asked to work on this case and identified a tiny, and I mean minuscule, speck of blood inside the plastic wrapping, that cellophane that cigarette packages have around them. This helped to prove that the men were not involved in this crime, and they were set free. Among several other forensic cases Dr. Gallup has helped to solve, the most notorious is likely the case of Princess Diana. Dr. Gallup was asked to take part in this investigation to eliminate conspiracy theories surrounding Princess Diana's death. All right, so we're going to switch gears. Let's take another right-hand turn here. Albeit controversial, there is one method that is becoming increasingly popular when solving violent crimes, and this is to access public databases. Some agencies argue that these sites invade individual privacy laws. However, some sites allow you to check a box that say you give permission to add your DNA to a database to help identify potential suspects in violent crimes. One example is how public DNA databases have helped to solve high-profile crimes, such as Joseph James D'Angelo, commonly known as the Golden State Killer. D'Angelo went on a crime spree between 1974 and 1986, and his identity was not discovered until 2018 when a distant relative had submitted to one of those genealogy websites. All right, you all, one more last right-hand turn. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously have a healthy obsession with true crime. I get it. There are tons of careers out there in forensics. If you're currently trying to figure out what to do with your life, there are jobs where the occupational outlook is quite high. I already mentioned that manpower is tested in numerous agencies. Looking into these careers not only helps our communities, but will give you a sense of reward when helping to solve crimes. According to the Federal Bureau of Investigations, firearms are used in 70% of murder cases in the United States. As a ballistics expert, you can help process crime scenes by performing a forensic analysis on evidence related to a firearm and start with an average salary of $50,000 per year. If you have the stomach for it, blood spatter analysts start off by making around $42,000 per year. You'll examine evidence on site, collect trace evidence, take photographs, and perform simulations like you see on that show Dexter. 
If you serve as an eyewitness during a trial, your earning potential can go as high as $160,000 US dollars per year. If you're like me, you kind of dig working with technology, but you won't always be working with crime agencies. More industries like healthcare, financial institutions, account, and law firms would love to hire you at $89,000 US dollars per year as a computer forensics expert. Your typical day will consist of monitoring hacking activities and protecting data from security breaches. You'll need a forensic degree and have working knowledge of information technology systems. Local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies are ready to hire you as a crime lab analyst. You'll analyze all that evidence brought to you from the crime scene. You get to put together all of your findings into a report that will later be used in a court of law. Crime scene analysts earn around $56,000 US per year if you have a chemistry or forensic science degree. There are also a ton of jobs to be found where you will process crime scenes such as being that photographer, a forensic artist, and an investigator. Opportunities are endless, so if you are interested in pursuing a career in any of these positions that I mentioned, look at your local colleges and universities to see what programs are available. Many times, employers will help out with tuition, so give it a shot. Well, that's the story of how crimes get solved. We know that the first 48 hours are very critical, but not always conducive to clearing a case. There is a plethora of reasons why law enforcement agencies run into roadblocks. Manpower is low, witnesses need to be located, but this does not mean that criminal cases should get shelved and forgotten. It just takes time to investigate. You know what that means, eh? If you are at a crossroads in your career, consider looking into some of those jobs I listed. There is a cool website out there called Occupational Outlook Handbook, which I'll add to my show notes. This website is sponsored by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics and is a great way to search for careers through forecasted growth over the next 10 years. Plan out your future, guys. So there you have it. Be sure to give me a shout on Instagram at Dying to Be Found and let me know what you think of today's episode. Or if you have a storyline that you would like to hear specifically on Dying to Be Found, the Dash. You can always let me know how we're doing right now by clicking that follow button and please rate this podcast because it really does help with visibility in the rankings. If you're a true crime podcaster or work in the true crime industry and want to be featured on Dying to Be Found, the Dash, send me your email and I'll send you information on how to get on one of our future episodes. Remember, the more people I interview, the less you have to listen to me. Thanks for listening to Dying to Be Found, true crime podcast in our Dash mini series. Every week, we'll bring you a variety of true crime episodes, a little dash of hope, plus special bonus episodes with some really cool guests. Before we go, we'd love for you to share this podcast with your friends and give us a five-star review. Follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest at Dying to Be Found, or visit our website at dyingtobefound.com, spelled just like you see it in our logo. Better yet, click on our Linktree account found in the show notes, where you'll find all the information in one place. Be sure to dash in every Wednesday for our mini-episodes, plus every Thursday, when I get together with some of my family members. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.